This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. All right, Revelation 21 and 22. Let's go to God in a quick word of prayer together. God of all glory, may our hope be firmly rooted in you as we look at what is to become of us. May we know that you have already written all things. And because of your power, sovereignty, providence, might, love, and mercy, they will all come to pass. May that be our great anticipation as we celebrate this week the coming of Christ which changed everything. And we look forward to the second coming of Christ, which will make everything new. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is the last sermon in the Equipped series. I hope you have appreciated working through these messages as much as I have in preparing them. And so today we fittingly come to the last two chapters of the Bible. One of the big aims of this series was to help you see the Bible as one big arc one big narrative. And to be sure, it's long and it has many stories in it and people in it. But when you stand back and look at it, you really get this view when you just do it in 13 weeks like we have. The Bible is one big story. And that's never more important and apparent than when we try to summarize the Bible. If people were to ask you, what is the Bible about? You've got to crunch the whole story into just, you know, a sentence or two. Try to just do it with your favorite movie in your mind. What is your favorite movie about? What's the, the basic plot or your favorite book? And then try to do the same thing with the Bible. What's the Bible about? When you summarize the Bible in one sentence, one statement, some things jump out to you very quickly because you only have room for the most important parts. And so here are a few takeaways as, as I tried to do this just this last week. Summarizing the Bible in one sentence, what you realize is the focus has to be on God. You can't say what the Bible's about and not say, well, God, or in the beginning, God. And secondly, you have to mention people. This is what you learn from trying to summarize it. You have to mention people. But when you mention people, despite the fact that there are many, many hundreds, thousands of people in the Bible, you really only need to mention people in general, and you don't talk about how good people are. You talk about how messed up they are, because while people do some good things in the Bible, what you learn from reading the whole thing is that people have a lot of problems that really just boil down to one problem. The third thing you need to include is Jesus. He is God, God incarnate. He's longed for every page of the Old Testament is longing for him, and every page of the New Testament is celebrating him. So you need God, you need people, you need Jesus and then there's one more thing. If you're just trying to smash the Bible into the, the, the most condensed version possible, you have to include what comes next. 
because the Bible is filled with predictions about the future. It's, predict, it's, predict, it's filled with predictions about the future for all that's been created, and it's filled with predictions about your future. And it's really clear. You either end up in the presence of God, perfect, holy, righteous, pure, innocent, whole, forever and ever and ever, or you end up in the opposite of that, separated from God and without any shred of his grace and glory. That's where the Bible says we're all going. So the Bible is filled with predictions about the future. Sometimes those predictions just come down to something as simple as what God will allow in this world based on the idolatrous hearts of his people or in response to the faithful faithfulness of his people, and other times it's the hope that awaits the people of God based on his mercy and love. So as we come to this book of Revelation, the very end of the Bible, this book is primarily about the future, but as we get into this, I only have this one Sunday on this, you have to hear me say that. So this book is about the future, but that doesn't mean this book is for the future, and there's a big distinction there. It's about the future, but it's not for the future. And here's what I mean by that. Revelation is not in your Bible, so you can decipher it like a puzzle to look for clues that you can interpret into world events and try to guess where we are in the timeline of history. That's not why Revelation is in your Bible. It's in there so that you can be filled with hope and with awe and even with fear, the fear of God, to persevere in your faith. Revelations in your Bible for your perseverance. That's why God has given it to us. It's a book filled with symbolism. Part of that is just style and genre. We talked about that early in our series. It's, it's an apocalyptic book. We don't read many apocalyptic books. But because of that, because it's a little bit of a, a foreign way to read to us, it's easy to become fixated on the symbolic at the expense of missing the wider picture. This is where people go divergent in their reading of Revelation. So in these verses at the end, we're going to look at a few symbols. But my hope in doing that isn't to try to interpret them in some mystical way to you. It's to try to demystify them by making them as plain as I possibly can so that we can move through the imagery to the true intention that God has given us these things for. And so Revelation is a book for today for your perseverance in the faith. If you feel like your faith falters, Revelation's a book for you. If you feel like you have significant questions about how this all turns out, Revelation's a book for you. If you feel like you're hanging on by a thread, listen up. There's great hope here. We're also doing this because in our series, as we're looking at Bible study and reading skills, we come to our last one. As we read Revelation, we're going to look at using Scripture to interpret Scripture. Now, most often, the Bible is easy and straightforward to read. It presents itself very plainly. God has given his word in such a way that lots of people can understand it, educated or uneducated. 
It's translated into hundreds of languages. It is a straightforward book to read. But there are a few places, admittedly, where because of style of writing, geographical distance, cultural distance, historical distance, the context that we sit in, the context that the Bible was written in, there are places that are harder to understand. It can be difficult to read. And so when we come to difficult places in the Bible, one of the first things we should do when we're wondering what does this mean, this seems foreign to me, is to ask where else in the Word of God does it speak to this? We use Scripture to help open up other parts of the Scripture. We use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Now, I put a few basic principles in your study guide. If you brought that turn there, these are really helpful for you. They're just some uh, little nuggets of, of phrases that can help you and orient you. There are things in there like, when things are obscure, when you think this is hard to understand, defer to places that are clearer. Think, okay, what, what, what can I be more clear on? Where, where, does it, where is it more sure that I, can be, that I can be confident that I have the right meaning here? Uh, the Bible uses a lot of poetry. We're going to see that here, also symbolism. Use direct teaching to make sure you're not getting confused by the symbolic and the poetic. Use the New Testament to speak into your reading of the Old Testament and vice versa. This is big for Revelation. Look at what the New Testament is saying and ask how it picks up on or is unpacking the teaching of the Old Testament. Revelation does that. I'm going to show you that several times this morning. Revelation does that a lot. It takes what God had said in the Old Testament and it shows how that thing, how that work of God has come to pass in Christ or will come to pass in Christ. So in Revelation, the Apostle John has written this. He's caught up in a vision of heaven, and he's going to be shown what will happen in the future, but to explain much of it, because it's things that are foreign, unexplainable to us, it's, it's heavenly, he's going to use languages and pictures and ideas that are common to people that they might have an understanding of, and then he's even going to use things that they would have been familiar with in their scriptures, their Old, our Old Testament. So let's read this. Now, there are three sections I want to break this down. We're going to start in Revelation 21, verse 1. First, we're going to look at what's new. There's new coming. Second, we're going to look at what is very ancient, especially some tie-ins, the Old Testament, things that God started doing long, long ago. And finally, we're going to look at what lasts forever. So what's new, what's ancient, and what lasts forever. Revelation 21, starting at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So this is a picture that John sees, and the first picture is a new heaven and a new earth. Now, if you're asking, well, where should this remind me of? How do I understand a new heaven and a new earth? And I'm talking about Scripture interpreting Scripture. Your mind should and probably did jump to the first creation, 
revealed in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what that means is there's a heavenly realm, but often in Scripture, when it talks about the heavens, it means the sky where the birds are or the stars, are what we would call outer space, and the earth, that's the land and the water. So there is a new act of creation. Just like God first created the heavens and the earth and everything and then populated them, now we have a new heaven and a new earth. And God will populate this with all the things that bring him glory and all the people who are in Christ. But there's something different about this. Very, very quickly, the first creation, just in Genesis 3, it only takes a couple of chapters, is marred by the destructiveness of sin. Like an acid, it penetrates through the holiness of God and it destroys what God had created perfectly. This new heaven and a new earth will never be destroyed by sin. Sin will never enter it, will never get near it. And then there's this line at the end, and the sea will be no more. Why no sea in the new heaven and the new earth? Is water wicked? Is this not good? Of course not. The Israelites were not a seafaring people. They didn't like water. They were often landlocked. They just didn't grow up with water. I grew up with water. I grew up in Minnesota, land of 10,000 lakes. I was just there this past week. In Minnesota, we boat and tube and ski and swim the lakes in the summer, and we skate and fish through the ice and drive trucks on them in the winter. Just this last week, my girls were running around on a frozen lake. Yes, they're already frozen to the point where it's safe to run around on them in Minnesota. Just this last week, my girls were running around. Ellie, my youngest, had never been on a frozen lake before, and she just thought that that was great, great fun and slipped a whole bunch, but she's fine. The Israelites didn't like water. They just didn't grow up with water. They weren't a people who took to the sea. They saw the sea as a place of chaos and turmoil and danger. And so when John says the sea is no more, what he means is there is no longer a place of danger where you go onto it wondering how it will go being subject to the waves and the wind and the weather and the violent conditions. In this place, it's peace and it's calm, and they can be sure that their footing will stand. The sea, chaos, is no more. And then it says in verse 2, I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So now we have the second thing. We have a new Jerusalem. Now, this is not a two-stage picture. In Revelation, in an apocalyptic literature, authors have the freedom to change metaphors and even to mix metaphors. So you don't have to think of like a new heaven and a new earth and then a city squashing the new heaven and the new earth. This is just a different picture. It's a two-stage picture. He's changing the metaphor. So it's a new Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem is a great city. Here's what Jerusalem represented to the people in its best of times. It represented the place where God's people gathered together to worship him in the temple. It was the place that David founded as his, set his throne on, and then it was to be the place that God's kings ruled forever and ever and ever, but Jerusalem was destroyed. And so to God's people, it was the remnant of what was. It was eventually rebuilt after the exile to Babylon, but it was never quite the same. And the longing of God's people is to get back to Jerusalem where the people of God gather together to worship and praise, and a king like David sits on the throne. But I want you to also think of cities today. Cities at their best are where people gather together to celebrate, where art and culture, music, common living take place. Cities can be great, but cities are oftentimes also where people run to, to escape. Cities are often plagued by crime and violence and poverty, social economic inequality. But this one isn't. This is a picture that is drawn straight out of Isaiah 65, starting at verse 17. There it says that God will plant a new city. That, that people will come in and go out of that city. That they will live there, build houses, work, and build up that city. That the people of God will thrive in community in the new city that God will build. This is the new Jerusalem. That's 600 years before the coming of Christ. And we still don't have the new Jerusalem yet. God said there will be a city coming. We'll talk more about the city in just a minute. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. There's a system in the Old Testament where God gives a covenant. It was common to have a covenant written between two nations or two nation states or two groups of people. There were conditions of the covenant, and then there were blessings and curses if the covenant was obeyed or broken. This is drawn again right out of Leviticus 26. It's at the end of the Levitical covenant, the, the covenant that God made with his people. And what he says is, if you obey this covenant, this is Leviticus 26, 11, I will make my dwelling among you and my, my, my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. In other words, if the people obey the covenant, they get to live with God and he with them. Perfection. The best. But God made that covenant knowing that the people couldn't live up to it. They couldn't match it. And so here, 
the new Jerusalem, God is saying, I know that you haven't fulfilled the covenant, but I'm going to give you not the curse, but the blessing of it anyway. It comes through Jesus. But we're going to get to live with God and dwell with God. The covenant that God made with Abraham, Moses, David, and the new covenant through Jesus Christ, the blessing of that is ours. Through Christ in the new Jerusalem. And you see there, no more death, no more pain, crying. All those former things pass away and they don't exist in the new Jerusalem. A couple more things that are new. And he who was seated on the throne, verse 5, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. On the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Verse 9. Now we get into things that are ancient and some pictures, some symbols. Then came one of the seven angels, I'll try to break this down as, as much as I can in a minute, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me. This is all referencing what happened early in Revelation. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. More on the city. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. And, the gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the walls of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Apocalyptic literature loves symbolism, and it loves numbers. 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel. It's also the number of the apostles. 3, 3, 3, and 3 makes 12. It's even. It's perfect. We're going to talk about the city as a cube in a minute, but let me talk, tell you why it calls the one, the victor, the lamb. Earlier in the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5, after Jesus speaks to churches in uh, what was mostly modern-day Turkey, southern Greece, um, he John is caught up in heaven, and there's a vision. The vision is of God on the throne, and he's holding a scroll in his hand. And on the scroll is written all the plans and the purposes and the works of God, all the things that make God great and all the things that he intended to do, but the scroll is sealed. In other words, his plans can't be revealed. His plans can't be brought out. They can't be brought to fruition. And he asks, is anyone worthy to break the seal and open the scroll? And nobody comes forward. And John wants to know. He wants to see God glorified. He wants to, to see the plans of God brought forth. 
but nobody can open it, and so he begins to cry. He begins to weep. He, he puts his head in his hands because nobody is found who's worthy to open the scroll. And as he's weeping, an angel comes and says, look, one who's worthy to open the scroll, the Lion of Judah. Judah is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's the tribe of David and of Jesus. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. And so John looks up, stops his weeping and looks up. The angel had said, the Lion of Judah, but John sees a lamb. He doesn't see a lamb and a lion. That's not two animals next to one another. Where the angel sees the lion, John sees the lamb. Jesus is the lion, king of all the creatures of the jungle, the most ferocious of beasts, and the lamb, one of the meekest of all cre creatures, who lays down his life for the people. He's both the, the conquering victor and the sacrificial savior. And so Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. That's why he calls him the lamb. Now more pictures, verse, 20, uh, verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are all equal. He also measured its great wall, 144 cubits by human measurements, which is also an angel's measurement. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. All right, so let's stop there really quick. There is a, the, the new Jerusalem is massive. If you set this city down, tried to set it down in the United States of America, what you'd have is a city that stretched from approximately Pittsburgh, West Virginia, down through like Atlanta, Georgia, so kind of a line about like that, that went all the way over to about Salt Lake City, Utah. It would be about as high as the, the border of the contiguous United States, sort of along the Canadian border, and it would stretch all the way down to the bottom of Texas, the tip of Florida. It would actually need to be, part of it would need to be in the Gulf of Mexico to make that city fit into the United States of America. And it's a cube. It's perfect in its dimensions of length, width, and height. If a city was that tall, the International Space Station orbiting the Earth would crash into it. It is massive, unlike anything we have. It's not even in comparison to anything else we have in this world. But you ask, why a cube? Now, we can build some great cities now, but what, what about it? Other than it's just perfect in dimension, why a cube? There's only one other place in the scripture that a perfect cube is mentioned. When the temple was built in Jerusalem, we just read about the temple. There's no temple in the city. Well, why is there no temple? When the temple was built in the first Jerusalem, God was very specific that its length and its width 
should be equal, and its height should be a third of its length and its width. So it's a rectangle. But the, but the inner part was split into two sections. There was the holy place and then the holy of holies. And the holy of holies was just the last third of the inner place. So it was one-third the length and the width, but it remained a third as high. It was a perfect cube. And it was into the Holy of Holies only on one day every year that the high priest, on behalf of the whole nation, after perfectly cleansing himself in the exact way that God said could happen, would go in and make atonement, sacrifice for the sins of the people so that they would be forgiven and be able to continue in covenant community under God. There's no need of a temple in the New Jerusalem. There's no need of a place to worship God because the whole thing is the temple of God. The whole thing is the holy of holies. The whole thing is the place where God and people can dwell in their most intimate way. The city that is unparalleled in our creation today is all the place where people can know and walk with God. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Have you ever been a place where you can see stars, not your backyard? You can barely see stars in your backyard. We live by a big city, and that's fun sometimes, but it stinks with light pollution. When you go out someplace... And when you live in a culture like they did, where there was no electricity, it's not only awe-inspiring, it's a little scary to look up and realize how many stars are up there, how much is up there. It really makes you feel small very, very quickly. But here and there, night is often associated with frightening situations. Night is when crime often takes place and when you have no electricity and no ability to light your city what you would do is you would build gates and every night the gates of the city would be shut to protect the inhabitants from anything that would come out of the dark into the city but look at now it's verse 24 by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. So there's no time when danger comes. It has gates, but they're just ornamental. It doesn't need gates because there's nothing to come into the city to threaten the people. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In the book of life, is the name of everybody who has confessed the name of Jesus and hoped in him after repenting of their sins for eternal life. If you've done that, your name is in that book not like a check mark for another one, your specific name, you. 
A lot of symbolism there. A lot of ancient things there. Now what lasts forever. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the corner sorry, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. Okay, so the, the picture is a tree that grows on two sides of a river, and essentially it never stops bearing fruit. In other words, it's always fruit-bearing. It's continually fruit-bearing. It never goes dormant. It never dies. It never needs to hibernate. The leaves of the tree were there for the healing of the nations. They don't fall down. There's no fall. There's no winter. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. God is one. There's not three thrones in heaven for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's theological heresy. The Father, the, the God and the Lamb share a throne in the new heaven and the new earth, in the new Jerusalem. And it says, And there his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This lasts forever. So in this year, when so many of us have been asking, what is to become of us? What is to become of me? The answer is this, this. That there's no more darkness. That God's name is written on you and with God, not just under God, but with God, you will reign in this new heaven and this new earth forever and ever and ever. So take hope brothers and sisters in Christ. For this is coming. And we need to ask this question because here's the thing about this. This is what happens if you remember all the way back to verse 8. But the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable murderers, the sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is second death. So there is a portion for those. And let me tell you the good news. Because everybody in this room can tell a story about being faithless, whether faith has faltered. We can all tell a story about a time that we haven't been 100% truthful. Idolatry is putting anything else in front of the Lord. We can all tell a story about a time we put something else in front of the Lord. And so it should be that our portion is in the lake of fire. But it says to the one who conquers before that in verse 8. If you were to read 
Revelation 2 and 3, you will see that the one who conquers is anyone who has put their faith and their trust and their hope in Jesus Christ. That's how you conquer. You don't conquer by trying hard to defeat your own sin and bring yourself into this kingdom. The only way you get in is the easiest way in the world to come. And that is to come through the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you say, I don't want to be in the lake of fire, I don't want to be with all of those people. I want to be in the new heaven and the new earth. How do I get there? You plead the blood of Jesus Christ. You ask for the mercy of Jesus Christ. And friend, you can live in the assurance and confidence and hope that it is freely given to you. Everybody here, everybody watching online can have this hope, can know this assurance, can persevere in this life, can know that one day night will be no more. Pain, suffering, all of that will be no more in the new heaven and the new earth, and that can be our hope. I told you we looked at something new. I told you we looked at something ancient. I told you we looked at something that lasts forever. The new is coming. The ancient, because God has decreed it, will come to pass. And his reign, glory, and those who are with him will be there forever. What comes next? This. This is what comes next. Let's pray. God, may your light shine over us and may you bring this quickly for we, your people, long to be with you. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.